Luke chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. If you want to get there in your Bible, I think it would help you to, to follow along, even if you have to pull out that pew Bible there in front of you. So far in Luke, we've seen several occasions where people have marveled at Jesus. When Jesus was just a baby, Simeon took Jesus up in his arms and he prophesied that salvation has come, that Jesus would be a glory to Israel and a light to the Gentiles. And when Joseph and Mary heard what was said about Jesus, the text says they marveled. In Luke 4, after Jesus has done teaching, the people marveled at his teaching, asking, isn't this Joseph's son? In Luke 5, following Jesus' instruction to Peter to cast the net on, go out and cast the net on this side of the boat, and the miraculous catch comes in, it takes two boats and the nets are bursting. In verse 26, it says, amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. So we've become accustomed to, I mean, we could go outside of Luke and look at many other instances of people marveling at Jesus. We've become accustomed to that, but this morning, for the first time, in one of only two narratives in the Gospels, Jesus marvels at someone else. Jesus is amazed at someone else, and the basis for Jesus' marveling is this man's faith, faith like Jesus says, as we'll see in our text, faith that he hasn't found in all of Israel. And so we dive into our text this morning. In the first couple of verses, we see that this, this faith, this, this faith that's worth marveling at, comes from an unlikely person. What's surprising about this narrative, one of the things that's surprising, there's multiple things, and we'll see as we go along, that this faith that Jesus marvels at is found in a Roman centurion. Look there in verses 1 and 2. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. So verse 1, we've been sort of in the sermon of Jesus, and so we're back in this narrative. We said that Luke oftentimes will spend the first verse or two just kind of locating this story, and that's what he does for us in verse 1. He locates the story geographically, and he locates the story chronologically. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, if you remember if you've been with us for the last several weeks, we've just finished Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. We took six different Sundays to study this sermon from Jesus, where he's calling this crowd. It's a, it's a mixed crowd. Some are wondering about Jesus. Some have already committed themselves to Jesus. Some have said they're committed to Jesus, but they're really not. It's a, it's a mixed crowd, and Jesus is calling them for total commitment, total discipleship to himself. And so he warned of the danger of rejecting him and rejecting his message and admonished everyone to trust him and live a life of obedience to him. And now in chapter 7, we return back to the action, so to speak. We return back to the narrative. This, this section that we're diving into, I think it runs all the way through eight, chapter 8, verse 3, it continues to develop this theme of who is Jesus and how should we respond to him. 
Who is Jesus and how should we respond to him? It's following this sermon that Jesus goes into Capernaum. Now this is the same city where Jesus was teaching in the synagogue earlier in the book of Luke. It's the same city in which he healed Simon's mother-in-law. Capernaum was a city of of some significance on the northwest uh, corner of the Sea of Galilee. For Jesus, it it, it serves as sort of a home base for his Galilean ministry. As as you might recall, in the book of Luke, Jesus is moving from Galilee towards Jerusalem. And Capernaum serves as sort of a home base for him as he journeys towards Jerusalem as we march through the book of Luke. And so Jesus is in this city. There's a large crowd that has followed him after hearing his sermon. And it's here that we're introduced to a man who many in the crowd that's following Jesus would have likely chosen as the least likely person to be commended by Jesus. The least likely person to express a remarkable faith. In one sense, we're surprised because he is a centurion. A centurion was a commander in the Roman army. You could probably put this together based on the word. He was over roughly a hundred other soldiers. He had some authority. He had some power. And we know historically, and we know from even things that Jesus has said, that the Roman army was typically no friend to Israel. At this point... Israel was under Roman occupation, under Roman rule, which was a disgrace to Israel. It was a humiliation to Israel. It was a reminder that they were not where God would have them be one day in in a kingdom ruled by God, that they were resting under God's judgment for their rejection of him. And not only this, this large Roman rule and oppression of Israel... But the Roman soldiers themselves were not often kind to Jewish people. This was well known. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, Jesus says, if someone compels you to go one mile, go with them two miles. He's referencing the the Roman practice of commanding a civilian to carry their baggage, to carry their armor one mile. Now imagine you're with your family in the marketplace and you need to go grocery shopping. Imagine the humiliation when another man approaches another man and says, you're going to carry my stuff for a mile. That's the context. This was a a frustration. It was a humiliation for the Jewish people. And so in, in a sense, this man's unlikely because he's a Roman centurion. In another sense, he's unlikely because he's well off, he's well to do. This um, centurions were paid well compared to other workers in the city and other soldiers. So we might be surprised a little bit that this is the man that's that's honored for his faith, especially in light of Jesus' warning in Luke chapter 6 that began the Sermon on the Mount. Woe to you who are rich, for you shall be poor. Yet this man, the Roman centurion who is well off, becomes the example of faith in our passage. This this centurion, who there's other reasons why this is surprising, we'll get to at the end of the text, but this centurion has a servant. Really, it's a slave who is near death. Luke doesn't specify what is wrong with the man. There's a parallel account in Matthew that says he's paralyzed and he's about to die. But this centurion 
seems to be a man of some kindness and some integrity. There's a couple different ways you might understand that phrase at the end of verse 2, who was highly valued by him. Some would say, well, this was an expensive slave. Maybe he could read or, or write, so he cost a lot of money, and so this guy doesn't want his slave to die because he's worth a lot. But that doesn't seem to jive with, with the context. It doesn't seem like Jesus honors this man's request of the centurion because, hey, if this guy dies, he's going to cost me a lot of money. So I'd like, to, I'd like to recoup some of my cost here. If you could heal this man, Jesus, that would be great. Instead, it seems better to take it, it, that uh, this man is valued in the sense that he's esteemed by the, the centurion. He's valued in that sense. Though a slave, he's dear to the centurion. So you have this relatively wealthy Gentile who serves in the occupying army of Rome. And the question becomes, what gives? Why does this man become an example of faith? And that's going to be really the point of the rest of our passage. For starters, he recognizes his unworthiness in light of the person of Christ. Look there in verse 2. We're going to go all the way through the first part of verse 7 there. I might have said verse 2. I meant verse 3. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. So in the midst of watching a, a dear friend, though he's a slave, die, the centurion hears that, that Jesus is in town. Perhaps he heard the murmurings that have been going around town about Jesus healing Simon's mother-in-law. We've, we've seen in Luke on different occasions that the word about Jesus was beginning to go around. It was beginning to spread. He was gaining quite a crowd at this point. And whatever it is that the centurion has heard about Jesus, he believed it. He asked Jesus to come and heal his servant. He doesn't say, you know, come see what you can do. Come see if you can make something happen. Maybe you can give him a few more days. He says, come do it because I believe that you can do it. But interestingly, he doesn't run to Jesus himself. He sends the elders of the Jews. These would be prominent social, civil leaders in this city. And surprisingly, a Roman centurion sends the elders of the Jews. The elders of the Jews not only go, but they advocate for this man. They intercede for him. Verse 4 says, they plead earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. Now, this is high praise. This, this word worthy is typically used to, to talk about maybe a group of people. It's rarely used to talk about an individual. And so this is, this is high praise. This is pretty shocking, the, the high praise, but also who it's coming from. 
It's coming from the elders of the Jews. Well, why do they advocate for this man? Why do they intercede for this man? The, the four there that begins verse 5 gives us the reasons. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who has built our synagogues. This centurion is sympathetic and sensitive to the Jewish people. He loves the nation of Israel. He respects Jewish worship and, and makes, uh, makes it available for them. He has an affection for them. I don't think it's like, likely. So, some have said, well, he sounds like he's a Jewish convert. I don't think that's likely. The, the Jewish elders say he loves our nation. If he was a convert, you might expect something like he loves our God. Our God has become his God. But they don't say that. He, he loves our nation. So we say at least he has a soft heart for the people of Israel. And he has put this, this kindness, this love for them into action by building them a synagogue. Perhaps even the synagogue that Jesus was speaking at earlier. By all accounts, this man is a man of integrity. He's a man of generosity. He's a man of means. But I think what happens is, is the Jewish leaders here, they show their cards a little bit. They reveal the, the works righteousness that's sort of bouncing around in their heart and in their, their mind. They say, look at his integrity, Jesus. Look at his kindness. Look at the way he has money and look at the way he spends his money. You should act for this sort of man. You should act on his behalf. He is worthy. But notice, Rusty stole my thunder in his prayer. Notice the centurion doesn't believe in his own worthiness. He doesn't buy it. We might ask, well, why didn't he come to Jesus on his own? And the first time you read this passage, before you kind of get to the centurion's words from another group that he sends out, you might be forgiven for assuming that the centurion doesn't go because he's too big of a deal to go. He has people under his authority, so he can send them. Why would I go myself when I can make somebody else do it? He's a leader of men. He is a man of means. So maybe that's why he didn't come to Jesus himself. He didn't have to. But the text doesn't say that. The text says that he didn't come because he knew he was unworthy. The Jewish leader said that he is worthy. The centurion says that he is not worthy. I recently heard the story of a seminary professor named Howard Hendricks who was invited to preach at a, a local church there, probably in Texas somewhere, and, and was told after his, his message, somebody came up to him and said, man, Howard, you are a great man. And he, he just loved that compliment. He just thought it was the greatest thing. And he's on the car ride with his wife home, and he's saying, great man. He said, I'm a great man. How many great men do you know? And his wife snapped back and said, one fewer than you think. <laughs> well, the centurion must have had a good wife reminding him at home that he's not truly a great man, that he's not truly worthy the way the elders of the Jews think that he is worthy. In fact, as, as Jesus approaches the man's house, the centurion sends another group, like, oh, I, t I asked him to heal him. Now he's coming to my house. I better send another group of representatives here. 
Now, this group is sent with a word-for-word message from the centurion. They're not delivering their own message. They are delivering the message word-for-word from uh, the centurion. And look at the message, end of verse 6. Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. The Jewish elders were saying this man is worthy. The centurion was saying, I am not worthy. I am an unworthy person to be in the presence of Jesus. He's not only unworthy for Jesus to enter into his house. That's the first thing he says. I'm not worthy for you to come into my house. But he also says, I wasn't worthy to come to you. Because then I would be in your presence. That's why he sent representatives. Not because he thought he was too good, not because he was too busy, but because he recognized that, that, that being in the presence of Jesus is not an acceptable place for him to be given his, the state of his life and the state of his heart. He isn't worthy. And he humbly acknowledges his unworthiness in light of the person of Jesus. We are reminded, I think, of, of Peter falling before Jesus and saying, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. As sinful creatures, there's nothing in us that would commend us to God. What the centurion recognizes, and I think that we can learn today, is that even though he had some stature, He had some authority, he had some power, he had some social clout. What he understood is that great men and and great women, even the greatest figures in history, much less our present day, they pale in comparison to Jesus. The greatest men and the greatest women in the history of the world are nothing compared to Jesus. The greatest leaders, the biggest philanthropists, the strongest military minds, nothing, nothing before Christ. Even John the Baptist, who Jesus will say, is there's no one born among women who's greater than John the Baptist. John would say, my job is to point to someone greater than me, Jesus, the Christ, the Savior. The centurion may not understand everything there is to know about Jesus, but he recognizes this, I am nothing compared to Christ. I am nothing when compared to him. And so this man's faith is demonstrated in this remarkable humility, and he's humble because he recognizes the authority and the power of Jesus. And so for those of us who who wrestle with pride, which is actually all of us, we can learn something here, that humility accompanies a high view of Jesus. Humility accompanies a high view of Jesus. In other words, pride and faith cannot coexist. This is true when we talk about saving faith. We've seen this over and over and over again, that God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble, that the proud person will never fall before Jesus. They will never admit that they need a Savior. They will never confess their sin before God. So it's, and they will never rely on the work of Christ on their behalf. So we, we know it's true of saving faith, but I'd say it's also true of, of those of us who are in Christ and want to grow in our faith. We want to grow in our trust. We want to be more faith-filled people. We want to be uh, growing in our faith. We cannot. We cannot grow without waging war on our pride because pride and faith cannot 
coexist. We should labor continually to clothe ourselves in humility. Well, how do we do that? Well, sometimes we, we turn inward when we want to do that. We, we think, man, I really got to buckle down here and I got to make myself humble. All right, self, it's time to humble yourself. But we, we are in danger of being so inward focused that we forget about the one who can truly make us humble. And so notice then that the centurion's humility is related to his view of Jesus. The centurion's humility is tied directly to his high view of Jesus. So true humility is not just being self-deprecating. It's not this man saying, well, I'm actually not that great of a centurion. I'm actually the worst leader out here. I'm a terrible soldier. I'm I'm a terrible Roman. That's not what true humility is. It's not saying you're the worst at something. It's not saying you're not, you don't have a single gift given to you by God. That's humility. That's not humility. True humility is seen in this text. It's recognizing that we are nothing in light of Christ. We might define humility as knowing truly who you are in light of who God is. That we are nothing in comparison to Him. That we are unworthy to be in His presence. So when I say in point number two that that remarkable faith, marvelous faith, renounces self-worth, I'm not talking about the the dignity and worth of every person in in terms of being an image bearer. I'm talking about this idea that I can stand worthy before the Lord in and of myself, in and of my own strength. I'm talking about the message that's delivered every commercial while we're watching the Olympics, that you are enough that you can do it. Don't let anyone get in the way of your goals and your dreams because you are worthy. Well, in light of Christ, I am unworthy. Yet through Christ, yet through the, the mission that Jesus has come to accomplish, through his work on the cross, we have been brought near, uh, the Bible says, by the blood of Christ, through the blood of Christ. The unworthy can stand in the presence of God if they are united with Christ by faith in His work. And so we should all desire, we should all move and work towards this humbling of ourselves, but we grow in our humility as we consider the high position of Christ and then considering how He gave up this high position to come rescue us from our sin. So this man, this Roman He may be paid well for his service. He may be rich in one sense, but he demonstrates through his humility that he's poor in spirit, that he's not relying on his riches, that he's a humble man who truly believes in the power and the authority of Christ. This man's faith is remarkable because he recognizes his own unworthiness, and it is remarkable, or we could say commendable, because he trusts the authority of Jesus. That's point number three this morning. Marvelous faith trusts Jesus even when he is physically absent. Look at the second part of verse 7. But say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. I love the message that the centurion sent. He not only says that he's unworthy to have Jesus in his house, he's unworthy to even come to Jesus, to be in his presence, 
But look how he understands the authority of Jesus. Just say the word. That's all you need to do, Jesus. Just say the word. The word of Christ is all that is necessary. When the centurion says, don't trouble yourself in coming to my house, he isn't saying, don't bother coming all this way. He's saying, just speak the word from where you are, and it will be done. Just say the word. I, what, what a marvelous and a beautiful phrase for us to add to our vocabulary as we think about the power of Christ. Just say the word. And I think as we think about the authority of Jesus' word, we can, we can say, well, we should rely and trust his promise. Because if he says it, it will happen. If he says it, it will come to fruition. So as you think about just say the word, Jesus, if you, as you think about his authority and his power, you can trust his promises. And you can also then pray with confidence for God to act. Because he is powerful to act, just say the word. The man, the centurion, with, with a decent amount of authority, recognizes the supreme authority of Jesus. Again, the, 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 the four there in verse 8, it gives us the reason that the centurion has confidence that Christ's word is enough. And he starts in sort of a surprising way. He says, I too am a man, a man set under authority with soldiers under me. That's an interesting thing for him to say. We might expect him to say, for I am a man who is in authority and I have authority. But first he says, I, I, I'm a man under authority. I sit in an authority structure and there are those above me and there are those below me. I think what the centurion is getting at is my word carries weight because I serve this authority uh, above me. And so as we think about Christ who has come on this mission, he is equal in every way to the Father. We, we, have to, we must affirm that. We must understand that. He's not, he's not less than the Father, but he has come to fulfill the will of the Father. He has come on a divine mission to rescue sinners from the power and the effects and the penalty of sin. And his word carries authority because he's God, yes, and because he's come to fulfill the will of the Father. Not only does, and I don't know that the centurion understood all this in his own thinking, but I think he's, he's getting at something that's actually true about Christ. Not only does the centurion affirm that he sits under authority, but he affirms that he has soldiers under him. And if he says go, they go. And if he says come, they come. And he has servants. And if he says do this, guess what? They do it. And so the lesson is, is plain. What the centurion is saying is easy to understand. If I, a Roman centurion, give commands and people obey my commands, I'm just a little centurion, I've got a hundred people under my authority, if I give a command and they do it, then surely Jesus can give a command and it will be done. Surely the one with all authority can speak and it will be done. You see, the centurion recognizes that he has authority, but his authority only goes so far. 
He doesn't have the authority that Jesus has. He can't tell the sickness to leave, and the sickness leaves. He can't do that. He can tell a soldier to go get something, and the soldier does it, but he can't tell death to stop dead in its tracks and turn itself around and leave, and death says, yes, sir. He doesn't have that kind of authority. Only Jesus has that sort of authority. And the centurion recognizes that. He also recognizes Jesus' authority over illness and physical disability are as complete as his authority over his own servant that must obey him. He recognizes as well that then time and space are no obstacle for the one who has all authority. Distance is no obstacle for Jesus. That's one thing that I think makes the centurion's faith so remarkable is his trust in Jesus despite the fact that Jesus is not physically present there with him. He says, just say it from where you are, Jesus, and and I know that it will be done. The incredible nature of this man's faith then reminds us, I think, of the reality that part of what makes life difficult or part of what makes faith difficult is the need to trust Jesus when we cannot physically be in his presence. We cannot physically see him. In our small group, before we broke for the summer, we were pondering this question from one of the resources we were walking through. What would it do for your faith if you could hear Jesus praying for you in the next room? What would it do for your faith if you could physically hear Jesus praying for you in the next room? Well, we're reminded in this text that we don't need the physical sight of Jesus in order to have remarkable faith. God can work this in you despite not being physically present with Christ. This faith reminds us that even though we can't hear Him, doesn't make the reality any less of a reality. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil for you are with me. Even though He's not physically present where we might see him, he is present with us. So we pray that 1 Peter 1.8 would be true of us. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. The disciples wrestled with this. What are we going to do when we're not in the presence of Jesus? Yet through his spirit and through the gift of faith, we might trust that his word is true, that his promises will be fulfilled, that he is currently praying for us and advocating for us at the right hand of the Father. So this sort of faith, the sort of faith that is expressed in humility, the sort of faith that recognizes the worthiness of Christ, that trusts the power of Christ, even even from a distance, it's, it's commended by Jesus. And this is the only sort of faith that Jesus approves of. We see in verses 9 and 10, marvelous faith is commended by Christ. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. What a, what a remarkable phrase that Jesus marvels at this man. He is amazed by this man's faith. Or we might say it this way, he's amazed at the proper object of this man's faith. 
Because the Bible doesn't just commend any sort of faith. Faith in and of itself is not, as, not what is commendable. It is faith pointed in the right direction, faith pointed in the right object. So faith in destiny is nothing. Faith in karma is useless. Faith in false religion is helpless. Faith in ourselves is useless. And we hear that one all the time. Trust yourself. Look out for, number one, believe in yourself. Bet on yourself. Well, faith in ourselves is disastrous, and it's destructive, and it actually incurs the wrath of God, not the commendation of God. It's proper faith. It's faith pointed in the right direction that Jesus marvels at here in this passage. Faith is good, and it's right when it's directed only towards Jesus Christ. Faith is good and right when it's directed only towards Jesus Christ. And the centurion's faith was. And so Jesus stands in awe of a Roman centurion who has never met Jesus, who has such trust in Jesus' person and in his power and in his authority. So Jesus, the, the consummate teacher, finds this a great opportunity to then turn and address the crowd that has been following since he preached his last sermon. They've been hearing about coming to Christ. They heard, heard the woes, that they better not bank on money. They better, not, they better not go all in on pleasure or popularity or joy. They've been hearing about how they ought to come humbly before Jesus. They ought to, they ought to become devoid of any sense of their own worthiness or righteousness. And Jesus says, here it is. Here's the example. Here's what I've been preaching about. The one who is not relying on the things of this world, but is relying on me. And Jesus makes his point in a shocking way. I think his words here are meant to shake the crowd. He says that in the Gentile Roman soldier, he has seen faith like he's never seen in Israel. Not even in Israel have I found such faith. We've seen some Pretty remarkable examples of faith in the book of Luke. I think of Mary, who was a young teenager when he found, she found out the plan of God, that she would bear the Messiah, though she has never known a man sexually. And what did she say? Let it be done to me according to your word. The friends of the paralytic were, were actually commended by Jesus for their faith as they ripped a hole in the roof and lowered him down. We've seen some remarkable scenes of faith in the book of Luke. And I don't think what, what Jesus is doing is trying to get us to say, this man's faith, it's greater than Mary. This man's faith, it's greater than these friends of the Gentile. I think what he's, what he's doing, what he's helping the crowd see as, is that the centurion's faith is a way to contrast the rejection of Israel for, of Jesus. So this man's faith is the exact opposite of the way Israel, by and large, with, with some exceptions, have received Christ. So while many among the religious establishment have begun plotting how to rid themselves of Jesus, a Gentile Roman soldier honors him. While many in Israel will seek for a sign after sign after sign, Jesus will miraculously feed 5,000, and they'll come to him and say, Jesus, what are you going to do for us to prove to us that you're the Messiah? They'll keep asking and asking and asking for a sign. 
Yet this man hears about Jesus and he believes and he acts on his belief and he trusts in his authority, having never met Jesus face to face. God wants to highlight, highlight I believe, through, through the way Luke records this, the unity, he, he's essentially preparing the way for the unity that will exist in Christ between Jew and Gentile. It is as if Luke is laying the groundwork So we aren't shocked when we get to Acts 10 and a Roman centurion named Cornelius is a God-fearer and receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Peter says, God has taught me not to consider any man unclean or common. Here you have a Roman who is sympathetic to Israel. He builds them a synagogue. The Jewish elders advocate for him. He trusts the Jewish Messiah. It's almost as if Luke is, is arguing and Jesus is laying out for us here. The closer these people are coming to Christ, they will be unified. And in Christ, these barriers are completely destroyed and completely uh, torn down. These barriers that were so common in Roman and Jewish society will be ripped down because their unity will be in Jesus Christ himself. And there is no Jew or Greek in Christ. Historians have recorded words from Romans calling the Jewish people a filthy race. The Jewish people would not associate themselves with the Romans. There was this barrier. There was this division. And here we see that Jesus has indeed come to save a people regardless of ethnicity, regardless of citizenship, regardless of social standing. He has come not to save on the basis of whether you were born an Israelite or born a Roman, not on the basis of whether you have a a means or not, but on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. And in Christ, there's one new man. Gentiles, then, as we'll see develop in the book of Acts, are not just sort of welcome to tag along. They're not just third wheel type of thing. They're part of God's plan for salvation. United to Christ, united in one new man. For the crowd, then, I think for the largely Jewish crowd following Jesus to humble themselves, they have to answer the question, will you trust like this Roman soldier? Humility for them was was being willing to answer the question, will you trust the way this Roman soldier has trusted Christ? And the passage ends in, in sort of anticlimactic fashion. It's, it's just kind of like a, a tag there on the end. When the servants got home, the man was, was healed. I, and I think that's because this not the, the healing is not the main point of the passage. The main point of the passage is faith. But we do see this. The centurion was right. He was right to trust Christ. He was right to affirm that all Jesus had to do was say the word and the man would be healed. He was right that the physical presence of Jesus, that the distance from Jesus were no obstacle for the Son of God to act. And so there's really two things kind of going on in this passage. There's the centurion's faith, and I think the narrative revolves around this topic of faith, this idea of faith. And therefore, like I said, verse 10 I don't think is the main point. But the other thing going on, the way the centurion talks, the way he expresses his faith, and the fact that the miracle does happen, is the authority that Jesus possesses as the Son of God. 
So we might say what makes faith remarkable in this passage is that it's coming from a Roman Gentile, but what makes faith, what it should be a no-brainer in this passage is that Jesus is the all-authoritative Son of God. I said early in the introduction, there's only two narratives. I mean, Matthew and Luke record the same story, but outside of that, there's only two places in the gospel where Jesus marvels. In our passage, Jesus marvels at the faith of a Roman centurion who recognizes that his hope is not based on himself and his own merits, but his hope is based in the goodness and the willingness of Christ to act according to his power. The only other passage in the Gospels where Jesus marvels is found in Mark 6.6, where Jesus has been rejected in his hometown, and the text says, he marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled because of their unbelief. He's marveling because it's amazing that they would reject the Messiah. It's amazing that they would reject the Savior. They're rejecting the one who has come down to rescue him. He came unto his own and his own received him not. He marvels at their unbelief because it's unbelievable that they would not believe in the Son of God. It's amazing. And so we can, I think, glean from this passage that we can trust the one who has come down. We can trust the one who has descended from heaven. We can trust Christ who took on flesh, who possesses complete authority, who lived righteously in every moment, and then took upon himself the penalty for our sin in giving up his life on the cross as the only acceptable sacrifice and atonement for our sin. We can trust the one who was resurrected from the grave and ascended to the right hand of the Father and awaits his return where he will judge the righteous and the unrighteous and he will rule and reign forever. He is worthy. He's the only proper object of our faith. So the message is bigger than be like this guy. The message is bigger than be like the centurion. The message is, the, the text is magnifying Christ. It's highlighting his grace and compassion. It's pointing us again and again to his power and his authority and his plan to redeem a people for himself from every tribe, from every tongue, and every nation. And as our eyes are drawn upward, then as our eyes are drawn towards Christ, our faith increases, our trust grows, and we recognize afresh and anew that he is the only proper object of our faith. Let's pray together. Lord, we are humbled. We are humbled by your word. And Father, we pray that your spirit would take the word and and change our hearts. That we would become in greater dependence upon you. That we would live moment by moment afresh and aware that we are unworthy, yet through Christ we might stand in the day of judgment. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.